1: Fox, there was this headline that crossed the terminal today that I thought was fascinating and kind of funny. Gutting Dodd-Frank is hard so Republicans turn to easier things. Things like, hmm, a bill about publishing research on exchange-traded funds, which is a bit less controversial than rolling back, say all of the banking regulations that were put in place in 2010 to get a little bit more perspective. Nathan Dean is here uh, with us. He is a government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and it is so nice to see him in person. He is with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. So, Nathan, how much can we really read into this idea uh, that, you know, because because Congress is focusing on these sort of smaller, more bipartisan issues, they're just disregarding? The idea of an overhaul of Dodd Frank.
2: So I don't think they're disregarding the idea of an overhaul of Dodd-Frank. They're just recognizing the fact that it's gonna take time. You know, I think the the House bill, the Financial Choice Act bill, the, the next version 2.0, it was supposed to be out in February. Now it's looking like it'll be out in March. It may be out in April, but I think the congressmen and especially the Senate, they recognize that, you know, if we want to replace Dodd Frank, it's gonna take a long time. So let's try and do some stuff and get it out of the way first. Bipartisan bills like an ETF research, opening up venture capital funds to more investors. And just today, they're having a hearing on the House side about flood insurance.
0: Nathan, maybe you can explain this because this also goes to the issue of reform for the Affordable Care Act, for Obamacare. Republicans in Congress were not in favor of Dodd-Frank legislation, correct? Correct. And they've had a fair amount of time to come up with an alternative plan. Is that accurate? Correct. Correct. So where is this alternative plan? Why are they
2: just crafting this plan now? So the House has crafted this Financial Choice Act, very broad. It's never going to pass. It'll right. pass the House. It won't pass the Senate. In order to get anything passed, you got to pare it down. You have to get specific. There is bipartisan openness to relieving banks below $250 billion in assets. Correct. You know, ICB. Too big to fail, it, right? It, yes, it, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but right now, there's just no incentive to negotiate. I mean, if I'm the, if I'm on the Democratic side, for example- Why would I negotiate on a Dodd-Frank bill, you know, when there are other things like Obamacare, tax reform, infrastructure, you know, that they want to tackle first? I mean, it's not like uh, banks are hurting right now. The FDIC put out a report last week saying record profits, you know, record uh, small business lending.
1: So does that mean that some of the optimism that's been baked into bank stocks and bank bonds is perhaps a little ahead of itself just because they're isn't likely to be anything in the cards for these very big banks, at least within the next, I don't know, eight months?
2: Certainly within the short term. You know, We don't see any relief uh, for the large investment banks coming from Congress in the short term. Regulatory side, it's a different matter, but even then that's going to take time and process. Chairman Hensling has said that this financial regulation is a year one issue, but if you look at the Senate side, it's probably more a year two issue. So I think if you're going to look at and see what can Congress do to replace Dodd-Frank, it's not going to happen this year. It's probably going to happen next year, and if that that's even if they negotiate.
0: As someone who walks the halls of uh, the Capitol and Washington in general, I'm wondering if you could give us uh, who are looking into that uh, bubble world, uh, into the Beltway, a, a sort of a, an idea of what has changed. Does uh, the tenor changed? I mean, just in the last, let's say, month or so, uh, in terms of trying to get anything actually out of the House, get it approved by the Senate, and get it on the president's desk.
2: So- You know, there was this idea that when the new Congress took shape, that the Senate was going to negotiate. Senate Democrats were going to be willing to negotiate. You know, there was some toxicity about the Supreme Court choice, et cetera. You know, that sort of pushed it off. But if Senator Crapo in the Senate Banking Committee is looking at capital formation and these small bipartisan bills, he's trying to build up that goodwill. So when that eventual financial regulation bill comes, he'll be able to work.
1: Can we just get a sense, as somebody who does walk the halls, how much goodwill is there at this point between Republicans and Democrats? Is there anything?
2: So goodwill is probably a strong word, but, you know, the the Senate in particular are full of experienced senators who have faith in the institution. They know how to work together. Senator Schumer, Senator McConnell, Senator Sherrod Brown, you know, they know that eventually they're going to have to negotiate, um, you know. So I, I, I still think that it's much less it, – it's certainly toxic – but uh, it's much less toxic than if you were in the house or if you're dealing with the white house
0: and that it goes with legis- that goes for legislation but as you said it doesn't really apply to any of the regulatory changes that might happen because that can be come from an executive order or from any agency changes. So
2: the executive orders that Donald Trump put out don't apply to the financial regulators. They're right. independent, overseen by Congress. Yet, you know, if I'm at the SEC or if the CFTC and the White House calls me up say, follow my executive order, I'm going to say yes. You know, I think on the regulatory side, we really need to wait until Janet Yellen leaves in February 2018 when Donald Trump starts getting his own people in. Mid-2018, I think you'll start seeing a lot of stuff. But before then, you're going to see so- small Jurisdictional—I mean, small rulemaking, small tweaks—you know, nothing broad or any anything like that.
0: Thanks very much for enlightening us. Nathan Dean is a government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He knows all about what's going on in Washington.
1: Right now, we want to turn to another uh, bit of news on President Trump's uh, radar. John Huntsman has been picked uh, by President Trump to be his Russian ambassador and to get a better sense of what this might mean for U.S.-Russian relations. I want to bring in Richard Kahn, a managing partner at Eurasia Advisors, who has intimate knowledge of Russia and has boots on the ground. Very uh, close sense of what is going on there. Richard, what do you make of this selection?
3: Well, look, I think John Huntsman is a a seasoned diplomat, uh, someone extremely well connected politically with the Republican Party, and uh, someone who is a a very safe, solid choice during a period when uh, the last thing Trump needs is a messy confirmation hearing. And So I think part of the explanation for the choice is the domestic aspect. Uh, but he's also a, a very experienced gentleman who I think can do a fine job in terms of representing our country in Russia. Uh, he does not, as you know, have a, a background, if you will, in in the Russian world.
0: Uh, but former U.S. ambassador to China, former U.S. ambassador to
3: Singapore, and former governor of Utah. Absolutely. So. Uh, th- this is a man of great experience, and I'm sure he'll handle this posting extremely well. And I-, I think we're lucky, frankly, to have someone with his level of experience serving our country in that capacity.
1: You know, Richard, one of the reasons why I was really eager to speak with you was because of some of the messiness that we've been hearing about the uh, President Trump's uh, campaign with respect to its relationship with China. In your opinion, as somebody who does have... Uh, pretty close knowledge and contacts in Russia. Do you think that there is enough evidence that has already been presented to give you a concrete feeling that there was some kind of collusion between uh, the Trump campaign and Russia to win the U.S. election?
3: I would say that uh, I think the wise course at this stage to put this behind us and for the president to put it behind him is to get in front of it by calling, for example, for an independent commission to look at it to uh, go forward with disclosure on his own part in terms of all of his contacts, all the rumors of compromat, anything that could potentially come out, because we are going to see an ongoing trickle of information. Uh, so I, I think that is the wisest court, of course. It also will help him avoid any issues uh, relating to uh, uh, interfering with the, uh, you know, with an investigation, which, as we know, it's it's not necessarily the actions themselves, it's the actions subsequent that can uh, uh, lead to various legal problems. So I I think he's asking for trouble by having this uh, handled exclusively by a a Republican-dominated committee, and that in the long term, uh, you know, this is only going to lead to a a longer and more painful situation. But I guess it's a long way of getting to, to the answer to your question. I, I do have genuine concerns. I about thought it was
1: just a punch, but it, go on. Yeah.
3: No, I, I am going to answer. I do think that uh, from mm-hmm. what I've both seen and what I've heard in Moscow, that there is reason to be concerned about this issue of whether uh, the decisions uh, that he made in the past and potentially some that he will make in the future are fully independent or whether they are in part influenced by uh, relationships, financial or otherwise. Uh, or kompromat uh, that the Russians may have. And uh, I I think it's healthy for us to get to the bottom of all of that. Uh, I regret that that's a situation, but I think that that is the case.
0: I wonder if you could comment on the state of the Russian economy having come out of a recession. And I'm wondering whether you can speak to the issue of economic performance not just taking into account the oil sector because chemical, agriculture,
3: machinery, food. Uh, What is the state of the Russian economy right now? The Russian economy has largely been frozen for some period. It's been compared often to the the Brezhnev years. Uh, The financial markets really have not been functioning. Uh, This is in part due of course to sanctions, but that's not the entire uh, story. It's also due to just the um uh, a sense of ennui uh, uh, the the freezing if you will of the initiative in that environment because people recognize that if they build a company and have success that ultimately uh, some rela- uh, government-related entities will uh, seek to um, obtain control of that. So well, I, I,
0: the, I, I, was, I was hoping to lead you down to military spending because mm-hmm. the Russians have just said that they are going to increase their military spending. But also the way that they calculate GDP is, is, has
3: changed, and they now include military spending as part of that GDP report. Well, first, let me say Russian military spending is a fraction of what we spend uh, the statistics I've seen is somewhere in the area of maybe six to seven percent of what we spend on on, on our uh, defense spending. And indeed, the uh, increase that is now being proposed by the current administration uh, would be in the amount the, the total amount of what Russia spends on defense. Uh, so, you know, Russia is not in a position to compete with us on uh, defense spending, but we're already in a position that dramatically uh, Uh, exceeds anything that the Russians can put up on all sorts of uh, uh, military fronts. I want to thank you very much for joining us, Richard Kahn. He is
0: managing partner for Eurasia Advisors, uh, giving us some detail about uh, the United States' relationship with Russia, Uh, maybe pointing out um, that John Huntsman, ambassador, uh, he's been selected to be the uh, U.S. ambassador to Russia by President Donald Trump. Perhaps uh, he can uh, change uh, the relations and put them on a more positive note.
1: Is your phone spying on you? That is the big question of the day. I want to bring in David Garrity. He's CEO of GVA Research, also a columnist at Investopedia. Uh, He is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And David, I know that you're interested in talking about uh, Alphabet's launch of Android, Android messages, but I kind of feel like we have to start with the recent CIA leaks and the emphasis that that's placed on security. Uh, particularly with respect to your phone. Uh, David, do you expect that this new emphasis on uh, potential hacks could alter the landscape for demand for Androids versus iPhones?
4: Well, certainly it'll lead to a greater demand for more secure software. And clearly Android, uh, with about 88% share of globally installed smartphone operating systems, is a big target. And
1: it's easier to break into the Android than the iPhone currently.
4: Yes, it is. And to the extent that you have any one of a number of smartphone uh, original equipment manufacturers or OEMs who've been taking the basic Android software system and then custom tailoring it in the process of doing that, they may also have created further security risks, which is what helps assist hackers in terms of getting access to Android powered phones. David Garrity, I mean, I, I'm not going to
0: pursue the security issue for the time being because, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, everything is hackable, right? I mean, there's nothing that is not hackable. Although,
1: hold on a second, yeah. because I think it will make a difference. If people are focusing more on this, it might determine whether they decide to buy an Android or an iPhone. I mean, mm. that's my point. All right. Well, so, okay. Would...
0: Well, good. Well, let's take that because, David, I want you to talk about the different marketplaces for Apple, iOS, devices and android operating system devices because i understand that the android operating system device that's a mid to lower market price point that's going to be a lot of a lot more growth there than it is going to be at the the higher end and that's a de facto chrome experience right google alphabet chrome and then that's a google search experience and now i want you to tell us about messaging because they also want that to be a Google experience.
4: Yeah, certainly. I mean, with respect to messaging, we've been seeing essentially a shift in terms of people's communication away from email and over towards messaging. It used to be SMS messages, but it's really more taking place within iMessage. Android or Google's problem with respect to messaging was, again, this proliferation, if you will, across various handset OEMs. They needed to establish a standard. Now, they have a product that's been coming onto the market called Android Messages. They're trying to acquire a certain base experience and standard that applies across all Android instances so they can be as competitive as, say, Apple's iMessage has been. And understand, Apple iMessage has recently generated about 63 quadrillion, that's 10 to the 15th power, messages per year, or to put it differently, that's 200,000 iMessages per second. That are being sent. So the volume- and that's an
0: ecosystem that has a wall around it because I understand. You know, if you do not have an iOS phone, you're not getting anything but those. I well, if you have, let's say, an iTouch or an iPad or something then you're inside the Apple ecosystem.
4: Yes, you are. And and to the extent that you're obviously sending to someone who has an Apple device on the other side, it's all going to be done with an iMessage. That doesn't say that you have messages that are being sent outside. They'll be sent as text messages. But yes, your point's correct.
3: Uh, We've
1: talked a lot about sort of the saturation of mobile phones. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, is there anything that Alphabet could do uh, or frankly, even Samsung or uh, Apple to change that or to sort of suddenly change the landscape and, and cause people to buy more iPhones or, um, or, or greatly expand uh, potential places where people use them.
4: Well, this has been a problem that certainly, you know, the, the smartphone market's been bumping up against and the whole knock on Apple had been the fact that their market was saturated. And you were looking at users who were holding onto their phones for a longer period of time just because of the cost relative to their incomes. And, you know, Jason Chaffetz's comment about sort of saying, well, they should buy health care premiums and not iPhones, you know, certainly goes over like, like a lead balloon, but it does touch on the fact that, you know, smartphones have become more expensive. Clearly, we're looking more in growth in other areas, uh, being able to apply these software uh, systems to the Internet of Things, which is where you start to raise more concerns having to do with some of these security elements that you were talking about earlier. But I would make one point is that while technology itself is capable of being hacked, we know from the experience around the Democratic National uh, Committee last year that it's really more human behavior, which is hackable not necessarily the devices. So if people are concerned about their security, the first thing they need to do is look to themselves. And how is it that they're interacting with technologies? How is it that they control the information that they either access or create themselves?
1: Uh, with respect to that, is there a differential between messaging versus phone, uh, voice phone over the phones? You know what I mean, as far as hackability?
4: You know, to the extent that uh, iMessages are, are encrypted and it's something where uh, Apple, in uh, dealing with the uh, San Bernardino uh, massacre, you know, Apple had taken a stand that they didn't want to provide access uh, to the shooters' phones and their devices. Um, you know, certainly in that respect now that there are hacks that were found around it. Um, but Apple tends to be more secure in this regard relative, say, to an Android. And certainly if you looked at voice communications, you know, for, for an encrypted voice call, uh, you'd have to go to a special handset. So from that standpoint, you would, interestingly enough, find that messaging, say, on an Apple platform, tends to be more secure relative to other means of communication. I want to get your thoughts on investing in Alphabet, the parent company
0: of Google. Here's a stock that is up about 9% so far this year. And I just love this comparison. In 2007, Google's revenue was $16.5 billion. Revenue, two thousand sixteen, over ninety billion. This is a company went sixteen and a half to over ninety billion, and it's
4: still growing at
0: double digit
4: rates. Yes. And from that standpoint, I mean, their base search applications are still, you know, very solid and the margins are certainly something that the the desire of many other uh, businesses. But we are looking at larger addressable markets that they're potentially moving into. Uh, People have certainly talked about driverless vehicles and the scale. But even if just the messaging that that you've described becomes moderately
0: successful, is this a company that's just going to continue to bowl, you
4: know, uh, bowl forward in this way? Google is, is very much well established in terms of the human capital that they have in place and the capability of the people who are there and their ability to continue to retract and retain these people. And from that standpoint, um, you know Trump's blathering about immigration aside, Google could just as easily set up its operations outside the US to the detriment of the U.S. tax base and still continue to be a very competitive company on a global scale. So from that standpoint, we clearly look at Google as being a company that arguably has to be part of a core portfolio for anybody who's looking at the technology sector. Other names like Snap, perhaps not so much. Thanks very much. David Garrity, is always a pleasure. He is the chief
0: executive of GVA Research. President Donald Trump is scheduled to meet with almost a dozen chief executives of small and mid-sized banks from around the United States. There, he is seeking their their contribution and their input uh, for a, a discussion about regulations which may be hurting their ability to lend to consumers and small businesses. This is all part of the listening sessions uh, that are taking place under the aegis of the National Economic Council, and we will bring that to you as it happens. Well, uh, let's uh, focus our attention more closely on one element of uh, President Donald Trump and the Republicans' plans uh, for taxes. Uh, They've said they'd like to uh, cut corporate taxes, allow the repatriation of cash that are in corporate accounts overseas, and also eliminate companies' ability to deduct Interest expenses from taxes. Here to tell us more is Noah Smith, a contributor to Bloomberg View, and he blogs at No Opinion. Noah, it's great to have you here in the studio. Thanks for being with us. Hey. All right. So this let's say that this is the 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 focus of the attention of bond market participants is whether corporations will continue to be allowed to deduct bond interest payments. What is going on there?
5: Right. So uh, for every company, you have to make a decision. How much do we fund our operations with equity and how much do we fund our operations with debt? Actually, most U.S. corporations fund mostly with equity. Actually, debt is, is smaller for equity uh, finance for U.S. corporations. But there's still a lot of debt out there. For banks, it's the opposite. Banks really take on a lot of debt and have very high leverage ratios. So they're the ones who would be most affected, although all, all companies would be someone affected. The idea is, right now, we actually privilege debt finance over equity finance. And under this new policy, that would be changed going forward. It would be a much more level playing field between the two.
1: Well, Noah, this is actually shaking debt markets in a pretty massive way. There is some speculation that the record pace of uh, investment grade issuance that we've seen this year is to lock in the current deduction uh, over a longer period of time that it will be grandfathered in uh, as they are unable to deduct these interest payments uh, from their taxes going forward. You made an interesting argument in a recent column. You're saying, you know, this is very important that this is part of the tax proposal, and it's probably a good thing. Uh, You highlight how. Studies have shown that the more debt levels are elevated in a country, the more damaging asset price declines are for an economy. So, in other words, you're saying structurally this might actually be a good thing to push corporations to take on less debt and to fund themselves more with equity. Am I right?
5: That's right. Yeah. Um, Whenever you see one of these giant financial blowups that ends up tanking the economy for 10 years, uh, you've seen this. Japan, Korea. We might even be seeing it happen with China right now. We saw it with us, of course, in, in 2008. There's always a lot of debt involved, whether it's mortgage debt or uh, corporate debt, as it was in Korea, or you know commercial real estate debt, as it was you know in Japan. Um, debt is always a big thing that's there, and that you can show this really easily.
0: Is that because uh, a bond uh, comes with a variety of legal constraints and restrictions and also obligations that you don't have with equity? I mean, if a company goes under and you're stuck holding a bunch of stock, you know, great, you're done. But if you're a bondholder, now you've got lawyers, bankruptcy committee, uh, experts, and you have a stake in what happens to the company's assets.
5: Right. I, w- I would say that's a, that's a lot of it. Um, the legal differences are absolutely crucial. Debt has, um, limited enforceability. We can't completely make you pay back debt. In fact, that's why they call bankruptcy protection from creditors. And because of this, you have this perverse incentive where I can actually have an incentive to borrow a lot of money and not pay it back. And uh, the econ blogger Carl Smith, uh, no relation, once wrote that it's rational to borrow as much as you can and never pay it back if there's no uh, penalty at all.
1: So if this goes through, as proposed, it will cause a massive shift in the way that companies finance themselves. And I would think that it could be potentially, I don't know, a painful process, no? Absolutely.
5: Absolutely. So one thing that economists are starting to realize is the economy is not nearly as resilient as people have thought. And these big adjustments to trade changes, legal changes, and just changes in the industrial mix of the country don't go so smoothly. And a lot of people can lose their jobs and be, you know, screwed for their, for their whole life because so of this.
1: So which asset classes uh, would be most affected during this shift? I mean, afterwards, granted, maybe it would create more stability, but amid all the turmoil
5: you mean which industries
1: yeah which industries where will we banks, see the pain
5: banks i mean they 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 borrow so much um a lot of housing related things because housing you know relies so heavily on debt and so so banks and housing related uh companies will be really affected i think and uh we so that's why i suggested that we we phase this in over a while to to give these companies time to switch to more equity finance, because in the long run it'll make the economy more stable. There's no reason to do this tomorrow. We're not about to have another financial crisis tomorrow. I think, <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know, but I famous uh,
1: last words.
5: Famous last words, but um, but we we deleveraged a lot, and so, but uh, but you know, ten years down the line, twenty years down the line, this could make a difference. So I I think it. Might be good to start phasing that in now, and and a lot of people have been calling for more equity for banks. Um, usually, this is in the form of higher capital requirements, basically hold more uh, cash, and so this could be another step in that same direction.
1: Thank you so much, Noah Smith, a contributor to Bloomberg View. Uh, he's also he was an assistant professor of finance at Stony Brook University, and he blogs at No Opinion. He's also uh, on Twitter at that uh, same. Address at no opinion. Thank you so much for joining us. That was great. Um, And it is something that we've heard a lot about in the corporate bond market because uh, you have seen a record pace of issuance of corporate bonds to date. And people are suggesting perhaps it's to get ahead of this rule change.